chapters 5 and 6. We're starting chapter 6, but we need to catch the last two verses of Galatians chapter 5 because they're sort of the transition that takes us from everything Paul has been saying about the fruit of the Spirit and uh, what he's been teaching us. It's the transition that takes us now into chapter 6 where he's teaching us uh, about the church. He's giving us ethical instruction, some admonition for us together as a church. I don't know about you, sometimes it's easy for us to uh, feel like these, the last few chapters of the epistles, it's almost as though he's already done all his significant teaching. He's already gotten all the doctrine out of the way, and now he's tacking on a few instructions, a few helpful remarks for the church. But, but this is just as much as the first few chapters. This is the Word of God. This is his attempt, Paul's attempt, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to apply everything he's taught about the gospel and about the Spirit and about grace and to apply that now what does it look like when a church together believes that and lives it in their life together? And so I want to read for us uh, from chapter 5, verse 25, through chapter 6, verse 5. And if you're able, will you please join me in standing to hear the reading of God's word this morning? Galatians 5, verse 25. <clears throat> If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing... He deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Heavenly Father, this is your word which your spirit has inspired to be given to the churches for our benefit and our edification and our growth in holiness and Christ-likeness. And yet we recognize that we are completely dependent upon the work of your Spirit to open our eyes, to illuminate the Word to us, so that we understand it, not simply uh, logically or reasonably, but so that we understand it spiritually, and that it does its work of transformation and growth in our lives, so that it will do its work of humbling our hearts, causing us to bow our knee before your throne and to look to you, our great God, for hope. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Well, <clears throat> many of you know that I have been, for all of my life, a fairly devoted Cubs fan. And that's good for a pastor because the, the Bible says that suffering produces character and character hope. And so it, it's good for me to root for the Cubs. It helps me as a pastor. Um, but one thing about the Cubs is, is that their philosophy, for at least maybe the last 10 or 15 years, has, has always been wrong in terms of how they've gone about trying to win championships. They're strategy has always been to try to buy superstar players who are sort of at the height, maybe a little past the height of their career when they can get a discount, and to simply add these superstars to the team. And it never works well, and it's never panned out for the Cubs, partly because baseball is a team sport. You don't just need one superstar or one individual player here or there. You need a whole team that knows how to work together that knows how to, to rely on one another and to play together as a team 
everyone needs to be uh, contributing. Everyone needs to be doing their part if the team is going to win. It doesn't just rely on the individual strengths here and there. And I think what Paul says to us in Galatians 6 is the same thing. Church is a team sport. Church is a team sport. And, and this is true. Christianity in general, everything we believe is not simply about God choosing to save individuals here and there and then just because we find it practical we get together once a week christianity is about god and his desire to form for himself a people a a, a new community and the new israel the church the bride of christ to call to himself a people who will worship him in spirit and truth it's never just been about me and jesus about about my own personal life but that when we are saved when we believe god engrafts us into his people so that we're part of a body that has many parts but is one body. It's the body of Christ and we must learn how to work together, how to rely on one another's strengths, how to compensate for each other's weaknesses, how to serve one another, love one another, help one another, and to do all these things together as the people of God as the church. In fact, what Paul says here, as we will see in, in, in chapter 6, verse 3, he says, this is how it's, verse 2 rather, We bear one another's burdens, and that is how we fulfill the law of Christ. If he has to pick one thing here and he says, this, brothers, this is the law of Christ for us as a church, does it surprise you what he picks? He doesn't say the law of Christ is that you will spend so much time reading your Bible or doing your devotions each day. This is the law of Christ that you help each other, that you bear one another's burdens that you as a church are are in this together, that it's a team sport, that we're all working as one body together in bearing the burdens of those in the church and humbly loving our new family. Only then are we fulfilling the law of Christ. And so the the picture that Paul paints for us here is of a church that is radically Christ-centered in everything it does and therefore is grace-based. Christ-centered, grace-based. That's the picture of the church that I see in these verses we've read. First, a church that is Christ-centered. When we read these transitional verses at the end of chapter 5, the first one is Paul's major thesis statement. This is actually part of his major theme of all of Galatians where he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. He's already said something very similar in chapter 3, verse 3, when he said, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see what he said there was, you began by the Spirit, that is, you were saved by the Spirit. You recognize that that regeneration only comes as a gift of the Spirit. That's how you're saved. But are you now trying to live, to walk, to accomplish your growth? Are you doing that in the flesh? He says that too comes by the power of the Spirit. And that's what he says here. He says if we live by the Spirit, that is, our life, our salvation, our, our... Uh, regeneration That's by the Spirit. We know that. We live by the Spirit. Now, let us also walk by the Spirit. In other words, we're saved by the Spirit. Let's continue in that. Let's grow in that. Let's walk and live in the Spirit as we continue to grow in the faith, as we continue to cultivate all the fruits of the Spirit, as we continue learning how to live together as a community, as a body of repentant sinners who gather together for worship and who have all experienced grace, who therefore share grace with one another, who who show grace to each other, who know what it is for someone else to bear our burdens, and so we bear one another's burdens. 
Paul would say it'd be totally incongruous for us if we know what it is to live by the Spirit, that is, we, we know what it is to be saved by the power of God, but we make no attempt to walk by the Spirit. If having been saved, we're, we're not also relying on the Spirit to grow in Christ. And so he, he's even more insightful, I think, in verse 26. When he says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, I think we read that in English, and the, maybe your, your first impression is kind of random. Right? He just tacked on one more little instruction there for us not to be conceited. But we read it in the Greek, and it's, it's actually much more interesting. Conceited, of course, we, when we think of conceited, we think of somebody who's full of themselves, right? filled with themselves. The Greek word is sort of the opposite. The Greek word for conceited, it's, it's kenodoxus, and it means, literally, it means empty of glory. A, a conceited person is someone who is empty of glory. Picture that for a moment. What, what does that look like if somebody is empty of glory, if somebody who perceives himself to be totally empty of glory, we, we have, as human beings, we have a need to be filled with something, to be filled with glory, and if we're empty of it, there's going to be a lot of striving to find it. There's going to be a lot of striving to do whatever we can, whatever is in our power to fill ourselves, to find some glory, to, to fill ourselves, because we have this need. And, and the conceited person is empty of glory, so what do they do? They provoke and they envy. They provoke and they envy. Both of these are just vain attempts to fill ourselves at any cost with some kind of glory. So if we're provoking one another, provoking is, is literally, that means to challenge others to a contest. To challenge them to a contest. So it's this desire to try to prove your own superiority by making others look bad. You're, you're always provoking, you're always challenging others in any arena to, to some kind of contest where you are confident you're going to come out on top, you're going to feel your own superiority, and therefore you, this is your attempt to fill yourself with some kind of vain glory in your soul to, to put you at rest. And so these are the kind of people that they can't hardly participate in any kind of conversation unless it's about a topic on which they perceive themselves to be an expert. Right? They don't like to even be a part of a conversation that, that's new to them, that is a topic they don't know about, or they, they can't dominate the conversation. These are people who don't like to play games that they're not good at. They would almost rather just sit out than be a part of something where they might not come out on top. Because the whole agenda of the provoking person in life is to make themselves look good through winning contests, through provoking others to display their superiority. So they never get in a situation where they're uncomfortable. They never take risks because they might fail. That's the provoking person. The provoking person is trying to fill themselves with glory by their own superiority. The other way they do it is envy. If you're empty of glory, you either try to pr produce your own or you just envy what someone else has. You look at other people who you perceive to have more glory and you just envy that. You just wish you had what they had, their, their goods or their status or whatever it is. You just want it for yourself. And he says, Let, let's not become conceited. Let's not be empty of glory that way because that's what we do. And so one of the insights here is that the way we treat other people is totally dependent on how we view ourselves. If you perceive yourself to be empty of glory, then you're going to provoke, you're going to envy. That's just the natural consequence. If you perceive that about yourself, that's how you treat other people. Are you empty of glory? 
Well, Paul has said to us what, what he considers to be true about himself, that he has been crucified with Christ. He no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. You see, the Christian is a person who is filled with glory because they're literally filled with Christ. By the power of the Spirit, Christ is living in them, and so they have no insecurity of the fact that they might be empty of glory. They're totally secure in who they are. And, and so the Christian now becomes a person who's not always challenging other people to little contests so that they can come out on top. And a Christian is not someone who's so insecure in their inferiority that they're always envying what other people have because they're not empty of glory, they're filled with glory. They're filled with the glory of Christ on the inside and their soul is so full that they are now secure. So they don't look down at others. They also don't look up at others. So you have a an unflappable security in Christ, and that gives you strength now to take risks on behalf of others. That gives you the power now to humble yourself, to even put yourself in a situation where, yes, you might lose. Yes, you might end up looking bad. Yes, it might not go the way you hoped, and that's okay because you're not looking to that contest for your glory. You're not looking to find your security there. You have your security in Christ. And so this is the necessary transition because Paul's about to go into chapter 6 and he's about to give us some of these instructions, some of this edification about how we live together as a church, how we ought to be functioning as a healthy body of believers, about how spirit-filled people can humbly help each other bear burdens and establish an environment together of grace. But the first priority in all of this is to say this, that that you can never have a real functional church that's, that's healthy and has healthy relationships unless the gospel is being preached and believed first. Unless the gospel is actively present, doing its work in the body of believers who are present, filling them with the security that is theirs in Christ. If the gospel is not the priority, the church as a body will never be healthy. So first it requires healthy, regenerated, Jesus-believing, Christ-trusting, gospel-embracing Christians who can come together and form a healthy church. You can't restore others who are caught in sin if you're always provoking or envying. You'll never bear one another's burdens if you actually delight to see other people bear burdens because that makes you feel good about yourself. You can't give grace to others if you've never experienced it yourself. And so this is the prerequisite for having a healthy church where, where grace is the dominant theme, is the gospel must be preeminent. The gospel must be preeminent. I, I was thinking about this the other day after I took Judah to get a haircut, and he loves getting a haircut because he gets a balloon as a reward for if he sits still during his haircut. And so he gets his balloon and, and carries it very carefully in his hand the whole way home so he doesn't fly away. But the thing about balloons from supercuts is this. They're, they're not great balloons. They kind of leak. They lose their helium pretty quickly. And by the next day, Judah woke up and his balloon was sitting there on the floor. Now, his balloon had become empty of glory. It, it no longer had anything in it that could lift it up on its own, that could cause it to do its job all by itself, to, to soar to heights of glory. It had lost all that. It was empty. And, and so... You know, Judah, he still gave it a great shot. He still tried to play with it. But the only way to get an empty balloon to do what it's supposed to do, which is float, is to keep batting it up. It's got to keep batting it up, and it comes back down, and you bat it up again. 
And sometimes we feel like maybe that's why we go to church because every week we get a little deflated and the pastor kind of bats us back up and he helps us to feel better and gives us that shot of encouragement and then through the week we come down and the pastor bats us back up. But there's another way to go about it. If you have an empty balloon or an empty soul, what it needs is not continual external batting. What it needs is to be filled with, with true glory. That balloon needs to be filled with helium. If it has helium on the inside, if it's not empty, if it's not hollow, then it does what it's supposed to under its own power because it has helium inside. And so it is in a similar way with us that, that we don't need to be batted. We don't need external propulsion every week. What we need is to be filled on the inside, have our soul filled with the glory of Christ. Then we're not conceited. Then we're not empty of glory. Then when we are filled with glory, we, we don't provoke. We don't envy. We are secure. And that gives us the strength to go about our task on ourselves through the power that is within us. When you fill something from the inside, then it works through its internal power, not through external coercion. And so people in the church who are empty of glory never function properly in a church. They're never in a part of a healthy body of believers because no matter how hard you, you, you try, no matter how much work you put into it, we must be changed from the inside first. The fruit of the Spirit begins to grow naturally only when the, the helium, the glory of Christ is in our souls. And, and so this is the necessary transition. He can't get into just telling us, instructing us, edifying us about the nature of the church. First, it's necessary that we be secure in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it be the central note that's always being preached. But then he can get into chapter 6 and say, we must have a church that's not only Christ-centered in everything, but now we can begin to talk about how to have a church that's truly grace-based. How do we begin to become a church, a body of believers, where the dominant note that strikes anyone who sees us is grace? Now, this is a gracious church. This is a, a merciful church. That's what chapter 6 is all about. It's about how to have a grace-based church. Because like we said, God is doing more in the church, he's doing more in the world than simply saving individuals here and there and, and eventually plucking them up to heaven. What he's doing is he's creating a people for himself. He's creating a church worldwide, a, a new creation of humanity where, where sin no longer rules, but grace rules. And so our goal in the church then becomes this. It's not only to preach grace every Sunday, but our goal is to live grace every Sunday. To, to demonstrate grace in practical actions and practical applications to one another. To be a church where the dominant trait is this, we show grace to those who struggle and who fail. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a part of a church like that? How nice would that be? How safe would that be to be a part of a church where you know week in and week out the dominant theme is grace? It's, a, it's okay to take risks. It's okay to fail because the dominant theme is grace that we have experienced from God and therefore we show to one another. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Brothers, now, the first word and the last word in chapter 6, except for the final amen, the first and the last word is brothers. And, and that sets the context for this discussion is that it's a family discussion. Just as his, his uh, key for understanding salvation was that we are sons of God, now our key for understanding our life together as a church is that we are brothers with one another. Brothers, 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So if anyone is caught in a sin, this is one of the sort of key ideas here. This is one of the key touchstones of how to determine if a church has truly experienced grace, if a church truly knows how to share grace, is this. How do they treat those who are failing? How do they respond to those who are caught in a sin? Harshly? With pride? With scorn? With, with derision? Or is it graciously? Gently? What he says is, if anyone is caught in a sin, he doesn't mean caught red-handed. He means caught like entangled, ensnared. If someone is caught by the sin, if the sin has them in its grasp. And this is such a, a great verse, I think, to follow up what he's just said, everything in chapter 5, all of this talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Because it might seem to us like he set a pretty high standard here. Nine fruit of the Spirit, every one of them seems difficult. But now he immediately says this. This is the context in which we hear and believe and cultivate and practice the fruit of the Spirit. The context is this. First of all, don't forget your position in Christ. You're filled with Christ. Don't be empty of glory. And second, we're all in this together. This is for us as a church. Immediately the verse is, is this. When people are caught in sin. So he's just given us all the fruit of the Spirit. Brothers, this is what we are to cultivate. Now, when you're caught in sin, now what do you do? How do we help those who are struggling with this? How do we help those who, who aren't succeeding at every turn? And, and I love that this is built right into the scriptures. This is the word of God to us that he says, when someone is caught in sin, because that tells us people get caught in sin. People get ensnared in sin. We, we don't need to be surprised. We don't need to be all of a sudden just baffled. Well, we thought we were a good church, but here's people caught in sin. He says, this is what happens is, people get ensnared by their sin and they need help. They need somebody in the church who knows how to come alongside them, who knows how to share grace with them, who knows how to help them by bearing their burdens, who can lift them up. This is the word of God. He says, we will need help. I heard one pastor say that, that our participation in a church ought to be more like a trip to the doctor than a trip to a job interview. What do we do when we go for a job interview? get as cleaned up as possible. We rehearse all of our best traits. We try to hide as much as possible any weakness, any failing, anything we've done that's not attractive. We hide those and we just present as well as we can a polished version of ourselves. He says that's not what church ought to be like. Church ought to be like a trip to the doctor where, let's face it, everyone knows we're all here because we're sick. That's why we're here. Because we need help. We need, we need healing. We need intervention. He says that's what, that's what the church is like. We're not people who are perfect, but people fail. People get caught in sin. People need help. And so here's the instruction then for the helpers. He said, restore. We should restore them. This should be our first thought. This is a word that is used uh, in, in secular Greek literature. It was used for the setting of a broken bone. You come upon somebody who's, who's out, of, out of order. They're just out of whack and... And you have to reset that bone. You have to restore them to a healthy life, to a healthy position. And so this is what we do. We, we should be committed when someone is caught in sin to restoring them. Not to ignoring them. Certainly not to gossiping about them. Not to provoking and, and, and seizing upon this and saying, Aha! I am better than they are. I knew it. 
but to humbling ourselves and say, how do we restore? We offer to help. Martin Luther says, it means we run to him, reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. To have this tender compassion for the person who is caught in sin. Even when we talk about official church discipline, this verse doesn't always refer to official church discipline. This refers to all of life together. But even if somebody is, is so caught in sin that the, the session of the church or the pastor of the church needs to get involved, we always say this, the goal is never to punish somebody for being caught in sin. The goal is always to restore them, to bring them back. If they are a prodigal who's gone astray, our goal is to bring them home. To, to let them see the welcome embrace of the Father and to cause them to know His grace and to run to Him. Our goal is always to restore. And what, how do we do it? What kind of restoration? First, he says it's done by the spiritual. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Now, he doesn't mean only the elite. Only those who are super extra super spiritual should restore him. He means this. He means those who are walking according to the Spirit. Brothers, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, you're spiritual. Because we don't want people who are empty of glory to be attempting to restore those caught in sin, do we? Can you imagine how that would go? If they are provoking and envying, and then you try to let them help somebody who's failing and at risk. But he says it's, it's the spiritual who ought to be restoring they ought to do it this way, with gentleness, with an eye on ourselves. He says this, that, that when we go to somebody who's fallen, who's caught in sin, to bear their burdens and to restore them, it ought to be with great humility. It ought, be, ought to be with a great humility, the kind of humility that comes from knowing that, that we are not above the failing that this person experiences. That we have an eye on ourselves knowing this could have happened to us just as easily. We are susceptible to our temptations. We're susceptible to sin. And therefore, we don't come to restore somebody with a heavy hand, with a proud mind, with a humble heart. With a humble heart. Can, can you just picture what a, a beautiful picture of the church that would make? That What a safe place it becomes. When you know that if you are caught in sin, somebody can restore you and they're not going to come, they're not going to lord it over you. They're not going to try to make you feel bad for, for what has happened, but they're going to come with great humility. It, it's a beautiful picture of, of, of grace because on, it has two things. On the one hand, there's, there's the ministry of truth that we must restore people. We recognize we do get caught in sin and restoration is needed. And we can't simply ignore them. We can't simply expect that they're going to do it on their own. There's, there's truth that we speak into the situation. But there's also the ministry of love that's right beside it. Because we do it gently. We do it with humility. We do it with an eye on ourselves as well, with no harshness and with no pride. And when you have the ministry of truth and it's together with the ministry of love, that's called grace. That is grace. It doesn't leave the sinner in their sin, but neither does it make them feel bad for their sin. The truth must be spoken in love. The restoration must be done with humility. And when it's done well, the church just becomes such a safe place. Such a safe place to be in, a, in the doctor's office, not the job interview, to be able to humble yourself, to be able to recognize and to, to speak to others and to ask for help because it's okay to bear one another's burdens and it's okay to have your burden be shared with others. So we need to be a place where we not only preach grace, 
but we live grace. We live it out, we demonstrate it, we share it practically with those who are around us, rather than a a shame-inducing place. To be a place where there's grace, a place where there's forgiveness, a place where it's okay to be human. A while ago, several months ago, I was reading a, a piece online that was written by a person writing about their experience shopping at the grocery store with food stamps. And he started this article, he sort of admitted that, you know, he hadn't made a lot of good choices in his life. He'd done a lot of dumb things, he hadn't gotten a lot of breaks along the way, and so he ended up in this position where where here he was shopping with food stamps, and what he wrote about was the deep experience of shame that he felt in the line at the grocery store when he got out his food stamps, feeling all the people in line behind him suddenly boring holes of accusation through him with their eyes. He just feel them scanning all of his selections in his cart. Oh, what did he choose to buy? What is he spending food stamps on? This guy who seems to not be able to provide for himself, but he needs help. And he said there was a deep sense of shame that accompanied that experience of shopping with food stamps. Have you ever been in line behind someone shopping with food stamps? And, and it made me wonder if that's what going to church feels like for some people. Particularly for people who just, they know themselves, they know their situation, they know their brokenness. Maybe their life has been marked by some dumb choices. Maybe it's been marked by failure or by some of the sins that are less acceptable. We know there are some that are just more respectable, but there are some, maybe it's alcoholism, drug abuse, divorce, abortion, uh, prodigal children who, who they're estranged from, whatever it is, there's these people who, who they come and they know the scars that they bear, and is that how they feel coming to a church? Do they feel like everyone is, is judging them and looking down at them rather than loving them, restoring them, bearing their burdens, being gentle with them, if they're made to feel like they're only here because they're on spiritual sin stamps? And it made me wonder, what if instead of that, what if there was a grocery store that you could shop at that was the best grocery store in town, the nicest one with all the richest food and the best selections, and you could only shop there with food stamps. You could only work there with food stamps. You could not go in and purchase anything with money that you thought you earned yourself. It was only things that you had received as a gift that were accepted there. Only food stamps could be accepted at this grocery store, but it was the best place in town. What if a church was more like that? where everyone in the church recognized we are on level footing at the base of the cross, that none of us come in here having earned our position, whereas others are here by grace. Everyone is here by the grace of Christ. Does that change the environment? Does that change the tenor of the church? Paul says that this is the kind of gospel humility that's required if we're going to restore someone in a spirit of gentleness. You must know that you too are liable to temptation, that you too are here by grace. You can never help somebody with humility if you think they need more grace than you do. You'll never help somebody with humility or love if you think that they need more grace than you do. You simply can't help them. You'll never be winsome with them. You'll never be gracious with them if you think they need more grace. That's why we instinctively know. I mean, when people come into a church, they instinctively know who the safest people to talk to in a church are. And it's usually the people that, that they sense have been broken. 
they know that the people who have been broken by life, who have had the most difficult experiences, who have been through the most, oftentimes those are the safest people for them to talk to because those are the gentle, those are the humbled people. Those are the people who know their need of grace, and so they're the people who are able to share grace. It's those of us who have not yet learned our need of grace, that have difficulty restoring with gentleness, that perhaps are not yet the spiritual ones who, who are able to fill this role. Otherwise, you become like the person in verse 3. He says, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And this is what he's saying. If you think, if you're puffed up with yourself, if you think you're someone, rather than the gospel reality that, that we're all nobodies, that we all need the grace of Christ, if you think you're somebody, you deceive yourself. He says, let's test our own work, and then our reason to boast will be in what we have done and who we are, and not in his neighbor. Each one will have to bear his own load. Now that, that could sound confusing. That's a different word altogether than the word earlier where he says, bear one another's burdens. Burdens are heavy weights that no one can bear by themselves. What he says at the end of verse 5 here is simply, we're responsible for our actions. He says there's a day coming when, when we stand before the throne of God and, and we will be responsible for the way that we have treated one another in the church. But he says this, this is the law of Christ, that we bear one another's burdens, that as a, a community of grace, we help. As Jesus has borne our burdens, he leaves our hands empty so we can bear one another's burdens. So no church member becomes left behind. No believer in Christ is left behind bearing their own burden, burdened under the weight of their sin and their shame. This is the law of Christ for us as a church. This is a team sport. That we're in this together. The highest calling for us as a church is, is not simply to pursue individual sanctification, but to pursue community sanctification. That as a church we're growing in Christ. As a church we're becoming more Christ-like. As a church we are reflecting him as the body of Christ. And showing grace, being marked by grace, being a church that's known for this, that that we show grace to those who need it. And that's all of us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to hear and respond to your word this morning. And so we want to humble ourselves. We want to take accurate stock of the depth of our need for your love, the depth of our need for your grace shown to us in Christ, to take accurate stock of our uh, our susceptibility to temptation and sin. How much we need your grace to cover for all of our sins and, and therefore to change us and to craft us into people who love the weak and the broken, who care for them, who bear the burdens of those in the church. Father, I pray that you will be doing your work to develop us into this kind of church that bears the burdens of the weak, that helps those who are caught in sin, that humbles ourselves before one another. We pray that you will do this for the glory of Jesus Christ, and in his name we pray. Amen.